Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayholt LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Glayholt LLP podcast, Building Insight. My name is Jacob McClellan, an associate here at Glayholt LLP, and I'm joined by Duncan Glayholt. Today, we are going to be discussing the new interim adjudication provisions under the Construction Act, which took effect on October 1st, 2019. In doing so, we are going to touch on a number of issues, including why these provisions are being introduced and some of the basic concepts arising from them, the timelines contemplated by the Act, how an adjudicator is appointed and some of the minimum qualifications and ethical considerations surrounding such an appointment, the processes to be followed once a dispute has been referred to adjudication, and the significance of an adjudicator's determination, as well as some practical considerations for owners, contractors, subcontractors, and their legal representatives. So Duncan, perhaps we can start with why these provisions are being introduced now and some of the basic concepts arising from them. Uh, Certainly. uh, Thank you, Jacob. Uh, And thank you for inviting me to address those topics. Uh, It's a good question always to ask why, because we're in the middle of quite a revolutionary change, uh, more sweeping than the changes in 1983 and more important and effective changes. The answer, Jacob, to the question why all this change is found in two documents authored by Bruce Reynolds and Sharon Vogel. The first one is called Striking the Balance, and the federal version of the same document really is called Building a Framework. And I commend those listening to this podcast to go back and look at those documents. They are enduring statements of the rationale for this legislative reform, and that would uh, be a good thing for everyone to go back and look at. But I'll shorten it up for those listening. In short, for me, uh, what was happening in the construction industry over the now 40 years that I've been practicing law in that industry, I would liken to a hardening of the arteries. Uh, Cash flow is the lifeblood of the construction industry. All of you listening that are in that industry know exactly what I mean by that. And over the course of time, uh, the cash flow in the construction industry had slowed. It had slowed because there were disputes and the process for resolving those disputes was necessarily uh, time-consuming and expensive. So this uh, was not good for the industry. The same thing occurred in the UK and the same observations were made by Lord Latham uh, back in the 1990s. So effectively what we've done here to our patient is to put a stent in the patient. We've made a a change that is minimally invasive by adopting prompt payment and statutory adjudication to support prompt payment. This will open up cash flow and allow cash to move through the industry the way it was always meant to. The cash is there, it just needs to move. So that is what we're doing. It's a minimally invasive but surprisingly effective way to get cash moving through the industry. I think also, Jacob, for those listening to the podcast, it's important to remember that these reforms take nothing away from the protection in the Construction Act, uh, now as modernized. Uh, The patient, in this case, like my uh, now strained metaphor, loses nothing really and hardly knows that this has happened. They just know they feel better and the cash in this case will be flowing. A very simple device. 
Uh, Jacob, this has worked elsewhere. We may be uh, revolutionary in adopting it in Ontario, but we're certainly not the first, uh, nor are we revolutionary in thinking of adjudication. Uh, adjudication has been adopted uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, slightly different than ours, uh, but the same general idea, uh, and many other countries, including several of the uh, states of uh, Australia. Uh, so it is. Uh, it, it was passed. Uh, I think the audience would be interested in this. It was passed unanimously by both sides of the, the house. There wasn't a single vote against it. Uh, it was something that everyone needed and everybody wanted. Our provincial government has done an admirable job of implementing this new legislation. Once the legislation was passed, our government provided for a very easy and fair transition into the new scheme. And you and I and everyone listening will see that transition happen uh, uh, magically on October 1st next week, uh, which we're all looking forward to. The next step the government took was to have a competition and to choose, uh, I believe wisely, a Made in Ontario adjudicator nominating authority uh, who is already training the first crop of adjudicators and they're doing a tremendous job. I took the course myself and I can report to all listening that it is an excellent uh, choice. And uh, finally, they uh, mandated, the government mandated, that this new scheme was going to be available to all. It was not going to become the province of lawyers, it was not going to become the province of engineers, or it wasn't going to become a, a business for people uh, that would exclude people from adjudication. Uh, the government mandated that price points be made available so that the parties uh, in the industry at any level, from the plumber in campus casing to the joint venture on Front Street, uh, everyone would have access to this new scheme at a price point that made sense. So they mandated that, and that indeed is being implemented. And uh, with that, they also manage the expectations of those using this scheme. So at whatever price point you are uh, availing yourself of adjudication, you are going to be able to understand just what you're going to get for your money. So that's, uh, that, Jacob, I think would be the answer to the question, why? But I think the audience is interested in the basic concepts. Uh, what is adjudication? Now that we know why we have it, what is it that we have? What makes it work? Well, I th I'm going to give the audience five basic concepts. First, it's fast. It happens in real time. It happens essentially in one payment cycle. That is the whole idea. These disputes over payment of money in Ontario and the construction industry will not be allowed to fester and grow. Uh, if you have a dispute, the statute forces that dispute to come out into the open and be resolved in one payment cycle. Second, as a basic concept, Jacob, it's going to be effective. Uh, we see that elsewhere in the world, and it will be effective. There will be no more ability to posture, no more ability to uh, defer and delay, no more bluffing. Uh, I would use another metaphor here. I would say everybody is now obliged to put their cards on the table as the dispute happens, and that, I think, will have a, a good effect. Uh, no work, no money, no money, no work. Pretty simple equation. Uh, the next basic concept is temporary finality. I can't help smiling, Jacob, when I say temporary finality because it sounds somewhat contradictory. But the adjudicator's determinations at every price point are only binding until they're overturned by an arbitration award or a judgment. So they have temporary finality. That said, they are enforceable like a judgment, and I think we'll hear more about that in the podcast. Uh, you can still lean. 
You can still arbitrate, you can still litigate, but experience in other countries tells us that people are not likely to want to do that once they've resolved early disputes by adjudication. Fourth, uh, cost effective. People used to joke with me that they were looking for a process that was good, fast, and cheap, and I could pick two of those. Uh, I think what we have here is a process that can be good, fast, and cheap, and you can have all three. Uh, certainly, it will be rough at the edges, but I think it will provide us with enough uh, quality, enough speed, and enough cost effectiveness to be a benefit. And finally, uh, of my five uh, basic concepts, it is private. It is something that the parties uh, do uh, privately. It is something that they can do between uh, two parties, a, a person who's provided a proper invoice and a person who's opposed payment. A contractor, of course, and we may get into this later, can join uh, for, uh, people down the chain uh, in, in adjudication, which might make it a little more complicated, but it'll be private. So I think those are the basic concepts that are at work here. The statutory provisions which bring the uh, system into play. If I was to recite those, I'd lose our audience, Jacob, so perhaps I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Duncan, for that insight. And I think our listeners will appreciate how excited you and we are for these changes. In terms of the timelines contemplated by the Act, the main thing to keep in mind is that adjudication is streamlined. The process starts with a party giving the other party written notice of adjudication, which must include the name of a proposed adjudicator. If the parties cannot agree on an adjudicator within four days, or if the proposed adjudicator does not consent to conducting the adjudication within four days, then the party who gave the notice of adjudication must make a request to the adjudicator nominating authority, which authority has seven days from receiving that request to nominate the adjudicator. No later than five days after the adjudicator is agreed upon or nominated, the party giving notice of adjudication must provide the adjudicator with three things. First, a copy of the originating notice. Second, a copy of the relevant contract or subcontract. And third, any documents it intends to rely on during the adjudication. Following delivery of any responding materials, which we will discuss later in the podcast, the adjudicator must make a determination of the referenced issue or issues no later than 30 days after receiving the documents. However, that deadline can be extended by 14 days at the adjudicator's request, but only if the parties agree. Once a determination has been released or communicated to the parties, the party required to pay must do so within 10 days. And any motion for leave to bring an application for judicial review of the determination must be filed with the divisional court within 30 days of the determination. However, it should be noted, and I think we'll touch on this later, is that an application to set aside a determination will rarely succeed given the very strict test stipulated by Section 13.18 of the Act. So Duncan, perhaps you can shed some light on how an adjudicator is appointed and some of the minimum qualifications and ethical considerations surrounding such an appointment. Thank you, Jacob. I'd be happy to do that. So here's how uh, adjudicators are uh, qualified in the province. We have an Adjudicator Nominating Authority. It has an acronym, ODAC, 
ODACC, which stands for Ontario Dispute Adjudication for Construction Contracts, which is quite a mouthful. There was a competition, uh, there was a specification, a competition, and the successful um, uh, proponent was ADR Chambers Inc., who are now the adjudicator nominating authority in the province, under a contract with the provincial government for, I believe, a five-year period. And that is a, a broad mandate and an important mandate to train, certify, and panel on a roster, appoint, and essentially supervise statutory adjudications in this province. And they're doing a very good job. I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Jacob, that I attended the first adjudicator training session here in Toronto. Uh, I would note to the audience that it, the training materials are certainly available online. They're excellent. I commend them to the parties. Even if you're not going to be an adjudicator, I think it would be an interesting thing for most of you in the audience to take that course, do the online course, and see what the uh, ANA has to offer. They're doing in-person courses as well, I know in Toronto and I believe in Ottawa and elsewhere in the province. But your question was a little more specific, Jacob. You wanted me to outline what are the basic qualifications of an adjudicator. Because these are very important people. These are the people in whose hands we are resting the decision as to whether uh, an invoice is paid or not. And we know how important that is. The qualifications of an adjudicator are set out in Ontario Regulation 306 of 2018. And they're very straightforward. The first is that you have to have 10 years of relevant working experience in the industry. I found that a very interesting choice of words. In the introductory class of 40 people, the men and women in that class were from a broad cross-section of construction industry uh, representatives. There were less than 10 lawyers. There were several accountants. There were several engineers. And importantly, to the success of this scheme, there were many senior and experienced representatives of the construction industry itself. Contractors, subcontractors, owners, people who'd spent a lifetime in the industry. And it would meet that first requirement about 10 years of relevant working experience in the industry. The second requirement is successful completion of the ODAC program. Uh, as it stands now, it is a comprehensive program, and I have no doubt that it will become better as future classes go through. It's a two-day program now and will evolve. It covers all aspects of the adjudication process and provides the roster of adjudicators with access to support, to forms, uh, to education in how to conduct their role, how to complete a determination, and frankly, how to assist the parties in fulfilling the purpose of this important statute. The third requirement is that you not be an undischarged bankrupt, uh, which I think we, we could just state and move on. As we can, the fourth requirement is that you not be convicted of an indictable offense in Canada or a similar offense in another jurisdiction. Number five is payment of fees. You have to pay the fees that are stipulated for uh, training and qualification. And uh, the fees have been set for the first few classes, and I'm sure they'll be adjusted, but it, it's, I can report because I paid them and I took the course. It's value for money uh, so far. But I think more importantly, Jacob, and I think more to the thrust of your question was, what about the code of conduct? What is it about the ethical concerns? How are they being addressed? Because they are indeed, I think, at the heart of the whole scheme. 
The sixth requirement in the regulation is that adjudicators all agree to abide by the code of conduct, and indeed, there is a code of conduct. If you go to the ODAC website, I believe you can download the code of conduct. But let me outline it for you. Uh, the first requirement is that you be free of conflict. I'll talk more about that in just a minute. Uh, you have to be confidential in what you do. And for people in the construction industry who are not legally trained or trained as accountants uh, or engineers, that can be a new and imposing requirement. You have to understand uh, deeply uh, the confidentiality of the process. Third, you have to make your determination as an adjudicator on the basis of the facts and law. Not your opinions, not your biases, not your views of the world and how it should run. You are to make your determinations on the basis of the facts and law presented to you. And your jurisdiction under the statute includes jurisdiction to inquire into the facts and the law to satisfy yourself that you can do your job. But again, we're on ethics here. Ethically, you're obliged to stick to your jurisdiction. You're granted uh, wide jurisdiction over the dispute that is presented to you for determination, but you're not to decide things that are not put before you. That is an ethical obligation. You are also obliged to treat the parties fairly and equally. That doesn't mean allowing them to do whatever they please, but it also means that you have to be astute and you have to be aware that everybody is entitled to make their case in whatever short time they have, and everybody is entitled to meet the case made against them in whatever short time they have. And walking that line will be the ethical duty of the adjudicator. And finally, there is a duty, uh, an ethical duty, to keep uh, timely and complete records of what you do as an adjudicator. Uh, what you do as an adjudicator is an important process, so you need to document your interaction with the parties, you need to conform to the timelines, you need to preserve your jurisdiction by doing those things, and for your own welfare as an adjudicator, and for the integrity of the system of adjudication, you're obliged to keep records. If you satisfy the requirements of the regulation, and you satisfy the adjudicator nominating authority that you are uh, capable and willing to sign the code of conduct, you can be enrolled as a roster adjudicator. But Jacob, I said I would return to the first point, which was the conflict of interest point. And I'll say a few words about that, which are my personal beliefs about how important that conflict point is. You have to look at conflict of interest not from your own point of view as an adjudicator, thinking, well, this could hardly matter to the parties. Uh, you need to look at it from the point of view of the party who is not going to prevail in the adjudication. That party will get disappointing news. They will be unhappy. If they were to find out that there was any circumstance, however minor it might appear to an objective person, that would render you uh, in a conflict of interest or cast some doubt as to your uh, fairness or bias in, in the system, then you should decline. Similarly, if you find something coming before you as an adjudicator that is offered to you that is outside of your competence and you feel that it's going to be a stretch for you, you should decline. Perhaps I'll close off this part of uh, my presentation, Jacob, by saying that the most important power an adjudicator may have is to look carefully at a file that is uh, offered to her or him and decide if you are free of conflict, free of bias, and you are able within your competence as an industry professional to decide that dispute. 
Do not be afraid to decline. There will be plenty of other disputes coming your way and leave that dispute for another person. So those, I think, are the, are the key points. Uh, the summary in my note for today's talk was under the heading, Be Intellectually Honest in Everything You Do, which sounds a little bit too much like uh, uh, motherhood and apple pie, Jacob. But I think those are the words that I would leave you with on this subject. Uh, be intellectually honest in, in all you do. Thank you, Duncan. Moving on to the processes to be followed once an adjudication has been commenced and the consequences which flow from an adjudicator's determination. First, preparing a claim for adjudication involves, in my mind, three steps. Step one, the notice of adjudication. This is a very important document which serves two particular purposes. It informs the other party, as well as perhaps the nominating authority, of what the dispute is all about, and it defines the scope of the adjudication, including the relief sought and against whom. Step two, detailed submissions. Although not mandated by the Act, it is likely that in all disputes, the notice of adjudication will be followed by some other document in which a party will make detailed written submissions akin to a factum or a statement of case. This is also a very important document. And step three, documents to be relied upon. Similar to detailed submissions, the Act does not prescribe what types of documents are to be submitted to the adjudicator, but the scope of production ought to be informed by the type of dispute. So for example, a voluminous set of documents might be necessary where the valuation of services rendered is the issue at dispute, whereas in more straightforward cases, such as non-payment of an invoice, only a few documents may be sufficient. Adjudication is really all about proportionality. The next issue I'd like to speak about is responding to a claim and in-person hearings. Under Section 13.11.1 of the Act, a party has a right to respond to a notice of adjudication, the timing and form of which is subject to the directions of the adjudicator. Although in practical terms, if a party is going to respond to a notice of adjudication, they will likely need to do so within several days of receiving it. Conversely, there is no right to an in-person hearing when it comes to adjudication. In fact, it is up to the adjudicator to decide whether or not an in-person hearing takes place. However, given the very tight time frames that we've discussed and which are mandated by the Act, it is likely that most adjudications will be decided on a documents-only basis. This means that in-person hearings will very much be the exception rather than the norm when it comes to adjudication. The Adjudicator's Determination An adjudicator's determination must be reasoned and made in writing, which if it is, is enforceable as if it was an order of the court. In terms of compliance, the Act provides that if payment is not made pursuant to a determination, then a contractor or subcontractor may suspend further work until paid the amount determined, together with any interest accrued and the reasonable costs incurred as a result of the suspension of the work. This is one of the most interesting parts of the new provisions uh, that I've come across. Lastly, the determination of an adjudicator is admissible as evidence in court. However, it remains to be seen whether these determinations will carry much weight. 
Moving on to some of the practical considerations for owners, contractors, subcontractors, and their legal representatives. One of the first things that I had considered uh, were the practical implications of the very tight timelines in which uh, the parties ought to adhere to when it comes to adjudication and how adjudication is likely to favor those that maintain detailed, organized, and up-to-date documentation. Unlike the traditional CCDC dispute resolution regime, the new adjudication provisions stipulate a much shorter completion time frame in under two months. And this means that those with detailed, organized, and up-to-date documents will be in a better position to commence and or respond to those claims within the stipulated timeframes. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that, Duncan. You know, thank you, uh, uh, Jake. Well, I do agree with what you're saying. I think the emphasis in adjudications will be on documents-only adjudications, and they will favor people who have the documents. So I believe that uh, keeping proportionality in mind, uh, everybody in our province uh, and other provinces that adopt statutory adjudication are going to want to look at their business practices and they're going to want to be careful to document steps in the process. Now, that does not exclude uh, oral evidence. It does not exclude evidence of oral transactions. So if people engage in job site meetings or conversations that they feel are important in an adjudication, statements to that effect, uh, sworn or not, may be admitted by an adjudicator and considered in the process of making a determination. Remember, Jacob, that the adjudicator has the uh, right, and I have argued elsewhere the duty, therefore, to inquire into the facts and law. So while everybody should keep good documents generally, and while that is even more important now, there is still room in the system for the person who has missed responding to a letter or not recorded what happened at a job site meeting to have their case heard. In other jurisdictions, they have what is called smash and grab adjudications. This has been a problem in the United Kingdom uh, and elsewhere. It means that the person who knows that there's going to be an adjudication has an advantage over the person who doesn't know there's going to be an adjudication in terms of preparation. What happens in other jurisdictions, and I believe will happen here, is the market will take care of this. Adjudicators will become aware of when they're faced with a smash and grab adjudication and will use the broad powers that they have under the statute, not limitless, but broad powers, to correct and level the playing field and come to a fair and balanced determination on the facts and law. Another practical consideration surrounds around legal fees and costs. Pursuant to the Act, parties to an adjudication bear their own costs unless a party has acted in a manner that is frivolous, vexatious, an abusive process, or other than in good faith. This means that parties that are assisted and or represented by legal counsel throughout the adjudication process will not be able to recoup those costs, which is obviously an important and practical consideration when it comes to selecting a form for a particular dispute. I'd be interested to hear your comments on this, Duncan. Thank you. Uh, this is interesting to me. I've heard people uh, express concern over this part of the statute, but I think that this part of the statute is entirely on side. People should look at adjudication the way they look at mediation. The mediation costs are not accessible against the parties. 
People participate in a mediation knowing that it is not a full court trial, knowing that it is a process that has its own purpose. And they know going in that they're going to bear the costs of that process. Adjudication is upfront and it's no different. It tells everybody that except in the most extreme of circumstances, the parties will be left to bear their own costs. That respects Jacob party autonomy, which is a principle, a thread, if you will, that runs through uh, the entire arbitration process uh, domestically and internationally. And I think it's a very sound provision of our statute. Uh, now, are there going to be cases where there are frivolous, vexatious, and abusive steps taken by parties? Uh, they will be very much the exception, very much the exception. Uh, it would be interesting to hear from a master of the Superior Court on this, but I think the number of times a master might hear a case that justified uh, an award of costs on those grounds would be two or three times in a career. Very, very rare. So I think the same will be true here, Jacob. Thank you for that, Duncan. Two other practical considerations to keep in mind, the first of which is the impact of adjudication on construction lien deadlines, holdback release, and other adjudications down the construction pyramid. The Act will allow an extension of time for preservation of a lien if the matter that is subject of a valid lien is also subject of an adjudication. For the purposes of preserving the lien, the lien is deemed to have expired on the later of, first, 60 days from the standard trigger date for preserving a lien, and second, 45 days from the day the adjudicator receives the documents for adjudication. Another practical consideration is the impacts of adjudication on the practice of construction law. Given some of the practical considerations that we have already discussed, including the very tight timelines contemplated by the Act, as well as the likelihood of parties not being able to recover any of their legal costs, there are inevitably going to be new challenges facing the construction bar. I'd be interested to hear your comments on this, Duncan. All right, thank you. Uh, a number of points uh, you raised that I would like to come back to. I think you've addressed the uh, timing issues with respect to liens. I shouldn't really characterize them as issues. I think what you see here is a very well thought through uh, statute where rights are preserved and, and time is allowed to exercise those rights. So I think we see the work that was done to make the statute uh, modern and fair. The overlap of adjudication with other processes, I find a very, very interesting topic, and I think perhaps a little beyond what we're discussing in today's podcast. It's a big topic. Uh, you've mentioned that determinations can be entered into evidence but are likely a, a to be of limited probative value given how restricted the process is, so I, I do agree with that. But that raises some interesting points to me. What about dispute review boards? Uh, because adjudication applies by statute province-wide, there will be projects that have dispute review boards. What uh, probative value does a dispute review board recommendation have in an adjudication? Conversely, if a determination is admissible in evidence, is it also something that would go to a dispute review board or would there be confidentiality concerns? Uh, somebody will have to look into that and we'll find out, I'm sure, in due course. Uh, the same with arbitrations. If it can be entered into evidence, uh, a determination in, uh, in a proceeding, I'm sure it could be entered into evidence in an arbitration as well. But what about a case where there is emergency relief or interim relief granted under the Arbitration Act that we have, 
or the rules that apply to the dispute, and then there's an adjudication, or vice versa. I think we'll have to work that out. Uh, now, how will adjudication change what you and I and all the lawyers listening to this uh, podcast uh, do from a day-to-day basis? And I think it's going to change what we do. I've spoken to uh, solicitors in the UK and I've spoken to lawyers in Australia about how their adjudication schemes changed their day-to-day life. And I think I would sum it up by saying uh, that what it does is it reduces inventory because disputes are not allowed to fester, but it does give you the ability to put a team in the field to do a very short, real-time task, which is enormously satisfying for the lawyers and the clients because you see the results of what you do in a very short time period. You can actually be effective as a construction lawyer in an adjudication in ways that you cannot be effective as a construction lawyer in arbitrations and certainly in litigation. So I think we'll see that change. I think we'll see in the next two or three years uh, the endlessly inventive and adaptive uh, professions, engineers, quantity surveyors, lawyers, uh, adapt uh, readily uh, to this new scheme and help make it a success. Thank you, Duncan. The only thing I would add is that there is certainly ample opportunity to get up to speed with these new legislative changes through continuing professional development programs, seminars, and roundtable discussions. It is certainly an interesting and exciting time for the construction industry, and hopefully the adjudication provisions will serve their intended purpose as we have discussed here today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.